needed. Today, open with me in your Bibles uh, to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. I'll be reading the entire chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, the very words of God. 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could, not go, could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall for, do for you before I'm taken up from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall, be, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind up into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into pieces, two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha walked over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw them, him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with you fifty uh, servants, fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of Lord has, uh, the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send. 
they therefore they sent they sent therefore 50 men and for three days they sought him but did not find him and they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho and they he said to them did I not say to you do not go now the men of the city said to Elisha behold the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees but the water's bad and the land is unfruitful he said bring me a new bowl and put salt in it so they brought it to him and then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said thus says the Lord I have healed this water from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it so the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke he went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around and he saw them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out from the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bring us under submission to your word today. It brings us some hard things. But Father, in the midst of the hardness, you always provide mercy. So help us to see law and gospel in your word today and to walk away encouraged. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's account in 2 Kings is the account of a change of the guard. A transition from the superstar Elijah, known for his battle with the priests of Baal, uh, to his underling. And if you're watching this, you realize what has happened to our hero. Well, we see, of course, it's up with the old and in with the new. The great prophet Elijah has been replaced by his understudy. And so this leaves us to wonder, is this man that's replacing Elijah, this Elisha, uh, does he have the mojo that Elijah has? Well, we're going to see today that Elisha, of course, uh, has the mojo. Elisha, of course, in the changing of the guard, does so with the power and the authority of God. We see in Elisha the authoritative prophetic word of the Lord, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And of course, it's accompanied by mighty deeds. Now note how the text reminds you of Moses and Joshua in verse 8. We see, of course, that Elijah parts the waters just like Moses did. Elijah parts the waters just like Joshua did before entering into uh, the promised land for the conquest. But also see, just as Elijah is the prophet of the Lord, so too is Elisha. We, of course, see that Elijah's mantle, both figuratively and literally, falls on Elisha. And it's in the clearest way possible, because we see Elisha in verse 14. He crosses across the Jordan. He crosses on dry ground. Elisha is a prophet like Moses. And he's on conquest like Joshua. He then goes and he purifies the waters of Jericho, chapter 2, 19 through 22. Then he curses some youths, and two she-bears mauls them, 42 of them. Thus far, we've been introduced to the main characters in the account, right? We've seen uh, Elijah, Elisha, and in back of them we have God, and then the prophetic tradition of Israel with 50 sons of the prophets roaming about. 
We see the inhabitants of a city suffering with bad water. And we see, of course, these boys who mock the covenant and its God. In order to appreciate the law and gospel in today's passage, though, we need to look at a bit more than just the characters. We need to look at the setting, right? We need to look, do some theological geography. What is important about these places in the history of redemption? The setting, of course, involves one river, the Jordan, two cities, Jericho and Bethel. We noticed in the text that Elijah and Elisha crossed the Jordan River, the river that Joshua crosses as he goes in and begins the conquest into the promised land. So Elisha crosses into Jericho supernaturally, just like Joshua did. Friends, you or I walk up to a river that's flowing, not a creek, and we drop our gown and your gown washes away. Not so with Elijah, not so with Elisha, not so with Joshua. This is supernaturalism writ large. So Elisha comes into Jericho just like Joshua did. Now, you'll remember after Joshua does cross across the Jordan, he goes to Jericho. And the whole account of Jericho, again, is supernaturalism written large. What military strat, you know, strategist comes along and says, hey, march around this city seven times, blowing trumpets. And, you know, I actually listened to an NPR episode once where uh, they got together all these instruments. They actually got together a bunch of shofars and they tried to measure the, the, the sound waves and would it be such to make walls fall? That is the wrong question when looking at the text. Supernaturalism is writ huge, okay? It is God working apart from means for his glory, employing stupid means. Hey, walk around this place and blow horns. Okay, Lord, I trust you. This insanity is going to work. Because you said so. Well, that, of course, is what happens with Joshua. Joshua lays out this curse after destroying Jericho and routing its people entirely. It says this, Joshua in Joshua 6.26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now, evidently, as Elisha crosses into Jericho, the city's been rebuilt, right? The city's been rebuilt. Indeed, it's during the, the reign of the wicked king Ahab that we see a, a man by the name of Hiel of Bethel with the king Ahab's approval coming and rebuilding Jericho. 1 Kings 16.34 confirms the prophetic word of the Lord that Joshua proclaims at the destruction of Jericho. 1 Kings 16.34 refers to exactly what happens to Hiel of Bethel's family. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So we see as Elisha comes in, newly minted as prophet of the Lord, his first stop is to a city that had been destructed, a city of great glory, a city with walls. And if you had an ancient Near Eastern city with phenomenal walls, it was a boast. It was something to glory in, 
We have a wall. We are safe. It is a testament to the kingdom of man. And the first thing that happens when Joshua goes over is they destroy that and say, do not rebuild that. It'll be at a great cost if you do. Now, what's going on when we see uh, in Bethel? Uh, I'll get to that later. We just see that Jericho, this city of human strength, uh, has been rebuilt. Now, the other city in the count is Bethel. Literally, Bethel is two words. It's bet, which is house. El is God, the house of God. This is a really sanctified city name, right? If you went and you found postcards of make-believe places in Christian bookstores, they'd make a name like Bethel. It has that wonderful, you know, sort of sanctified feel to it, right? Uh, that's the name of the city, the house of God. And, of course, Bethel is given to this city, the name is given to the city, not by the Hallmark card makers, but rather a grateful, formally oppressed Israel as they leave uh, Jeff, uh, Jericho. They had seen, of course, the people of Israel as an oppressed people saw their God fighting their enemies. Yet under the reign of Ahab, as goes the king, so go the people. Ahab, of course, was apostate. He had no interest in the God of Israel. He had no interest in the testimonies of what his God had done in uh, the midst of his people. No, he, of course, worships Baal, and he worships Asherah. Now, ironically, it's the son, it's a son of uh, Bethel, a son of the house of God, that comes and decides it's a good idea to rebuild a city here, right? It's a good idea to remake Jericho. It is this uh, gentleman whose name I can't find on the page, Hiel, that uh, rebuilds Jericho. Now, rebuilding Jericho, of course, was a way of erasing the heritage of Israel as a God-bought people with a God-given land. As Paul would later say, if I rebuild that which I destroyed, it proves that I'm a lawbreaker. This is true of Israel as a nation, as a typological kingdom, a picture of the heavenly reality on earth for all to see. But as we see King, uh, Israel in 2 Kings, it's a marred picture. Not only has Ahab committed to privately worshiping the gods of the land, that which they were explicitly forbidden to do, but he publicly sought to extinguish the evidence of God's inheritance to Israel. Let's rebuild Jericho. Let's forget God's mighty works. Now, beloved, it's into this context that Elisha comes into his ministry. When the mantle of Elijah falls on Elisha, this is the context. And so we're going to look at a couple acts of Elisha in this passage. His first act in 19 through 23 of Elisha is an act of grace. Despite the people's ignoring the warning and the curse of God on Jericho, it is rebuilt. Apparently, the waters of the land were acting as an abortifacient. People, women, were miscarrying due to the water, right? It is a bad source of water. There is suffering associated with it. And Elisha comes into this context, and he heals the waters in mercy. There's no nagging. There's no word of, well, you shouldn't have rebuilt this place. Suits you right. You made the bed. Sleep in it, right? No. 
God, through his prophet, is gracious to the people of Jericho. I'd like to just mention that this, this speaks about the reach of God's grace. There is no place that God cannot reach and cleanse, even if we have defied him in all of his laws. The call to come home is always there. There's no place that God cannot reach and God cannot cleanse. There's no sin that is too gross. There's no stain that the gifted resurrection life of the Savior can't fix. Come to him for cleansing if that is you today. He's good for it. He's good for it. But his second act of cursing the boys makes many readers wonder, why is this in the Bible? Depending how one understands the Hebrew text, either a bunch of little children or possibly teenagers are literally torn to pieces by two bears in a rather gruesome way due to their mocking of God's prophet. Sometimes when we come to a story like this in the Bible, we're tempted to ask, why all the gore? Weren't the kids just being kids? Is Elisha at this point in his career sort of like a baby rattlesnake? He's unaware of the, the poisonous power of his venom, as it were. He hasn't learned to control himself. What's wrong with this prophet who's off the rails, we want to ask? Well, it's worthwhile to keep in mind as we ask these questions that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and neither are his ways our ways. We need to remember that he's God and we're not. We're not his equals. If we were, we might have a leg to stand on. But that sort of ontological or you know, matter of being leg to stand on, we don't possess. Consider for a moment when we see Abraham in Genesis 18. And Abraham is beseeching the Lord to be merciful to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, look, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people, you wouldn't destroy the city. 40, 30. God, won't the God of all the earth do what is right? Abraham gets down to 10 and is haggling with the Lord. And uh, I always appreciate Abraham's boldness in that regard. Uh, I'm not terribly inclined to haggle over a used bike, but here's Abraham haggling on behalf of people, which, by the way, we need to learn to do with the Lord on behalf of people. On behalf of the Lord, seek to see them reconciled to him. God nonetheless destroys that city. And the message we get there, of course, reiterated by the psalmist and Paul the Apostle, of course, there's none righteous, no, not one. And that is hard. The question we want to ask is, why didn't God save everybody, right? Universalism, or at least hypothetical universalism, is so attractive but no, the fact of the matter is no one deserves good. But maybe that'll soften the blow a bit, but it's a hard passage. It's helpful for us to remember as we delve into this passage that Elisha is not just a bald guy getting taunted by kids. Okay? Been there, done that. It's a thing. But that is not all that's going on here. As we've seen, he is God's mouthpiece, the covenant prosecutor and representative. Upon him rests the spirit of Elijah, which is none other than the spirit of the Lord. This is not about upset people. No, there's much more at hand here. 
Therefore, when we see, of course, that Elisha is mocked, don't think of it only as Elisha that's being mocked, but also his office, which is a fascinating study. The idea of office, something we struggle with, especially as Americans. But it's his office as a prophet, and also it's God himself that is mocked. But how is God being mocked? 2 Kings 2.23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he's walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, they said. Now these covenant children from Bethel, these children from the house of God, they came out and they broke God's covenant in two ways in particular. First, they openly disrespected the works of God. In all likelihood, what's going on in this passage is they heard about Elijah going up into heavenly glory on chariots of fire. They heard about this, but perhaps they didn't see it. Perhaps they viewed it as a myth, and they sought to test the Lord by calling upon Elisha. Go on up, bald head, right? Put on a show for us. Let's see you use your—you're in good with God. Let's see some of these supernatural powers. That is never the purpose of miracles in the Bible. They attest to the reality that God is proclaiming at the time. It is not a game. It's not a magic show, regardless how much you want to pay. Go on up, you bald head. Go up, they cry. So they are mocking and they're testing the Lord. Secondly, they broke God's covenant by openly disrespecting the prophet that God had set in authority over them to call them to repentance. Elisha is not there to do them any ill will. He's calling them to fidelity to the covenant. He's doing what prophets do. Repent. Come back to the covenant. Honor your word. Honor your God who has redeemed you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, who's made promises inconceivable to you. No, he's calling them to repentance. He's not violating their will. They are, of course, openly disrespecting the prophet. Now, remember the fifth commandment. It tells us, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Living long in a land like Bethel, the house of God, a gifted land from amongst a pagan people. Well, not only does this commandment call on us to obey our parents, but all of those people whom God has placed in authority over us. Some of those that God has placed in authority over us are our presidents, our pastors, our teachers, our elders, and many others. And certainly there's distinctions between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth in terms of what that uh, authority looks like. But nonetheless, he has called people to be over us that we owe respect to. Perhaps on this Lord's Day afternoon, sit down and read our church's Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 123 through 133. It unpacks the fifth commandment. It would be certainly an edifying read. The second Helvetic confession of the Reformation, uh, they state rather boldly that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, certainly there's some escape clauses there. False preaching, preaching that isn't tied to the text, preaching that's about you. Yes, all of that's true. But the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And if that's true, and I'll go to bat for that one, or go to the mat for that one, if that's true, how much more the divinely appointed lawyer for the Lord, the prophet Elisha in this context, 
How much more true is that? This is the divinely sent prophet of Israel. So this leads us to ask the question, with such flagrant violation of God's law and disregard for his covenant, what should we expect to see when someone, even a child potentially, openly defies the works of God and the commands of God in the face of clear evidence? Many expect that God and God's prophet should gently rebuke them and that God should pardon them on account of their age, perhaps. Now, the Hebrew for this passage and the age of the children is rather murky. It's rather unclear. The age could be anywhere from potentially very small children to maybe 17 years old. I'm personally of the opinion, I can't prove it, I'm of the opinion that this is a gang of teenagers. We've got 42 kids unsupervised running about mocking the prophet of the Lord. It doesn't look good for the good church people of in the town, right? Uh, so I'm personally of the uh, opinion that, uh, you know, these are probably teenagers. These are young thugs. But either way, whether these are little children or teenagers, we have to admit that there is no place for any sinner to hide. There's no magical age of accountability to be considered here. Among the many and awful things that God tells us he would do to those who broke the Old Covenant, it's found in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, 22 says, I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children. Destroy your cattle and make you so few in numbers that the roads will be deserted. So, beloved, the hard truth is, what should we expect to do God to do? We should expect him to keep his word. Wild bears coming out of the woods and mauling these reprobates is exactly the type of thing that we should expect for a holy theocratic nation that had cast off her God. It's one of the many curses that God had promised to those who would break his covenant. Do you want to reel down or go read Deut Deuteronomy 28? I mean, God is serious with the theocracy. You are a holy people set apart. And God is serious with all of us. It's one of the many curses that God has promised those who would break his covenant. And of course, it's not just these hardened boys. Disobedience of this sort in this magnitude is evidence of apostasy from the highest to the least in the land. At the end of 1 Kings, of course, we get Ahab, the whole Ahab account. From Ahab and Jezebel, his pagan wife who worshiped pagan gods, we see these two apostates, uh, well, we see that they, of course, are indebted to the idea that, God, you have no lordship over me. I'm fine with seeking ways to erase your heritage. Go ahead and rebuild Jericho. Ah, you know, build another altar for another deity. From the top to the bottom, this really influences society. Now, this rejection of the covenant was rampant. We see, of course, Hiel of Bethel. He dares rebuild Jericho. Either he didn't hear about Joshua's prophecy of the cost of rebuilding the temple, or he didn't care. Perhaps he was like these boys. It's just neat mythology. Go on up, bald head. I dare you, God. See what you do with my kids. God is not to be mocked. And that is the message of the passage. It is... It is not a bald dude. 
It's not just a guy. It is God. Now, this rejection of the covenant was rampant, of course. This apostasy is even seen in the most blatant ways with these young lads. The faithful in Israel, you'll remember Elijah, of course. Elijah is so concerned about there being nobody of faith in Israel when he's running away from Ahab that he tells the Lord, am I alone, the faithful? And God has to tell him, there's a remnant. There's a remnant theology at play here, as there always is. Lot was the remnant in Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells Elijah, there's 7,000 who've not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Beloved, how is it with you? Do you hate the things of God? Is coming to church a burden for you? Do you only want to sleep during the service? Do you make fun of your minister? Can you only wait for the service to end so that you can eat and meet with friends and play? Beware, these children that we're studying about and from the house of God likely thought such things. But they didn't think it was fun when they saw their friends being mauled, nor themselves. Parents, are you faithfully keeping your baptismal vows? It's not a cute ceremony. We are committed to warfare. Not warfare with guns and tanks and bombs. God forbid that get out, that out of your mind if you think that but rather a warfare with the sword of the Spirit, that we are catechizing our children, teaching them about the Lord Jesus and the things of the kingdom of God. Are we being faithful in that? Do we read the Bible to them and pray with them and for them daily? Or are we too busy with work or leisure to bother? Or perhaps we've overwhelmed them so much with studying academic content that they're simply too tired to learn the Bible from us. Perhaps do we provide bad examples to our children? Oh, that was a long sermon today, honey. Kids pick up on this stuff. Your kids are phenomenal exegetes of you. They can unpack what you're like. And I always worry, what kind of beast do my kids see in me? Um, far worse than one I'm aware of, I'm sure. Your children learn these things. Beloved, keep in mind, Jesus says it's better for one to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the bottom of the sea than to cause one of his children to sin. Now, brothers and sisters, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? And especially for me, you know, truth be told, I wrote this as a Bible study 20 years ago, and revisiting it on the other side of parenting is hard. But uh, I wouldn't change anything because at the end of the day, it's about God and his glory. So, this is one of those passages in the Bible that we want to share, uh, hide, not share. <laughs> um, it's, it's intense. We all have to examine ourselves here. These 42 children of Bethel from the house of God very likely learned disobedience from their parents or their culture about them. Indeed, this is a gruesome event, and it's written for us as an example to warn us to flee from such unfaithfulness. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things, all of the history of Israel, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. But as we look at hard passages like this, we have to ask, are we any better than these children who received the just curse and judgment of God? If we're honest with ourselves, we have to say no. 
We too, even as Christians, break God's law and break it at every point. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at that point of mocking your pastor with bald-headed jokes is guilty of breaking all of it. Text doesn't say that, but it does say if we stumble at just one point, and we're guilty of breaking all of it. True, most of us probably don't call the preacher names. Now, don't disregard the works of God and break his commands. I'm sorry, but don't we disregard the work of God and break his commands when we lust after the world and the things of it? We do. We, too, are worthy to be condemned, just like these 42 children. You see, this is the hopeless situation of sinners. The call of the law of God for personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity, that is, you do it, you keep it, without lacking, forever, perfectly, and on your own. Don't try to hitch that train to somebody else. Well, they did it for me. No, no, that's what's required of you concerning the law of God. Well, the fact of the matter is that sort of personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity it's unanswered by humanity. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in this regard. We fail in this regard. And when we do, of course, one of the old goal twos is to blame God. Well, God, it's your fault. Beloved, were there not a second Adam, the eternal fate of these 42 thugs, yes, hell itself, would be ours. Turn your attention with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. After Jesus' baptism and his entrance into public ministry, Mark records for us, Mark 1, 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll know from reading passages like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, you'll know that he came as the second Adam on a divine rescue mission to ransom people like you and me from sin, death, and hell, to rescue us from the curse, to rescue us from the sign under the theocracy of wild animals coming and getting you, okay? No, Jesus comes to bear that kind of sin. Like our first father, Adam, Jesus was tempted by the evil one. Yet notice at the end of verse 13, it says that our Lord was with the wild animals. Adam, in his temptation in the garden, of course, we see that he is tempted within the most beautiful environment. It is a place that he needed to guard and keep, yes, but it wasn't by the sweat of his brow that he labored. He wasn't out chucking spears, guarding it from, I don't know, a herd of buffalo or cheetah, those kinds of things. No, he was supposed to guard it from talking snakes, right? That is the charge for Adam. But Adam is in the confines of a lush, fruit-filled garden during his temptation. There's no wild animals threatening him there. The only threat he has is Satan himself. 
the animals didn't threaten Adam because he was not cursed and he was not cast out. But notice when we look in the Gospel of Mark that the temptation of Jesus happens in a very different arena. He is playing on Satan's home court. It is in a wilderness. There's no fruit to be eaten. There's no recharge for this fight. No, he is 40 days without food. 40 days hunger in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his temptation. The wilderness is the place of Satan's power. It's dry. It's barren. It's the opposite of the Garden of Eden. And Jesus' temptation occurs on the very ground that was cursed due to Adam's sin. His temptation occurs with wild animals present, wild animals like the bears that killed these 42 boys in Elisha's day. There these animals await, ready to tear him to pieces, should he stray from his path, should he break the covenant. What's Jesus doing here? Why is Jesus, the creator, surrounded by wild beasts and undergoing the temptation from Satan in the wilderness? It's because the sinless Lord Jesus is bearing the curse of the covenant for people like you and for people like me and for all those who will repent and believe the gospel. Jesus lived his whole life for this, to bear the curse of God for cosmic criminals like you and me. Go read the gospels. They're all really short stories that are primarily focused on he's going to the cross, he's going to the cross. They're passion narratives with short introductions. He's going to the cross. That is what Jesus is about. He lives his life to bear the curse of God for cosmic criminals like you and me. This life of suffering and bearing the curse began in a feed trough. A feed trough. But it reaches its climax on the cross where shortly before his death, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's somebody that doesn't need to be forsaken. He is feeling in his being all that it would be for hell to be poured out on him. And of course, he's eating that, as it were, for sinners like you and I. God forsook Jesus on the cross because our sins were transferred to him. All of our sins, past, present, future, God pours out all the curses of the covenant, all the pain, misery, and eternity of hell on Christ. And he did this for you who cling to him by faith. Paul states it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? Not only are our sins transferred to Christ, not only has he bore the curse for us, but Christ's very righteousness is transferred to us. It's not as though God has merely forgiven you and asked you to stay clean by your own efforts. No, God has adopted you into his family and seated you in heaven itself. You have Christ and all of his benefits. When the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ and is pleased. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, although we are not better than these 42 children that hated the works and commands of God, we are different. We are made from the same clay, but we're different. Rather than mock God's works and mock God's servants in disbelief, we embrace our Heavenly Father in Christ and by faith alone. We live lives that show that we are people of repentance and people of faith. And we're showing works that are in keeping with repentance. We're showing the fruit of faith in our lives. 
although you will suffer in this life, and that's a promise, you will never suffer the wrath and curse of God as you hide in the Savior. Now, children, this is a rough story, and adults, too. Don't worry about the possibility of bears attacking you because of some sin. Don't worry about bears attacking you for this reason. You don't live in Israel in that time. The way in which God exercises his lordship is different between Old Testament Israel and all nations today. Of course, we see the pattern in 1 Corinthians when gross sins are going on in the midst of the church. Paul says, kick him out of the church. Excommunicate him. Paul does not call curses down from heaven for bears to gobble up the disobedient. Beloved, know that nothing, nothing like the horror these 42 children in Elisha's day experienced will come upon you as you trust in Jesus. Even, God forbid, should you be attacked by a wild animal out on the streets. No, of course, that is not a sign of God's displeasure. Christ has borne the Father's curse so that no one who flees to him in faith will suffer God's wrath. Now, this gruesome, seemingly gruesome passage vindicates both God's justice and mercy. His justice is vindicated because all sin receives its just punishment. His mercy is vindicated because he's taken that punishment in the person of his son. And he takes that for you. How is it with you? Do you find fault with God and his works, looking for a loophole while surrounded with the reality of evil and having no better solution? Or do you hide in his son, crying with the blind beggar of old, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me? Let's pray. Father, as we navigate uh, hard words uh, in the scripture, Remind us who you are and who we are, how we give thanks that there's always a remnant, that you always find ways to show mercy. Father, forgive us when we think that we could out-God God. We'd like to push you out of the driver's seat and say, ah, I've got a better plan. But the fact of the matter is we don't have that leg to stand on. Uh, we have your word. We trust in your goodness and your mercy. And we see it in this text today. What a good God we have. That those curses which we see enacted and deserved by all of humanity, they're taken by the Son. And Father, presented before the Father, and you make something beautiful. You make all things beautiful in your time. Grant us faith to trust that and share that message with our neighbors and friends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let us pray for a uh, offering. My apologies. Father, we give thanks that you send the gospel out across the earth, that Christ is preached both here and around the world. Bless these monies to be used to support the work of the church and uh, to proclaim Christ and him crucified and not us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.